focusing in on John 13:34. Turn with me please to that wonderful scripture, John 13:34. As a prelude to our sermon. A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Thank you very much, Dean. I am very fortunate, and we all are fortunate, to have some outstanding people in our congregation here that are totally committed to this church. And um, someday we'll figure out how to run these machines. I wish you could see the PowerPoint today because it is helpful. Um, uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to share something from my heart for a few moments. I have uh, now 41 years in ministry, and in those 41 years I have tried to find ways to do ministry the most effective way. And I have tried to go out and do evangelism and win people into the church. I've been pretty effective at that. I could bring people in. But then I find out that they leave. And so, and they, they, and that's sad. People that you work with, that you spend time with, and then they leave the church. And then after a while, they, not, they don't all leave, but enough of them leave that it's a little discouraging. So I, I keep looking. I've kept looking for what can be done that can actually change that. And I believe now in about the time of retirement, <laughs> I believe that the most important thing is what Dean just read to us. Uh, Jesus told us, he showed us how to do evangelism. And um, yes, it did involve preaching. Yes, it did involve teaching. But if you were to have been in any crowd or any meeting that Jesus held, there would have been no doubt in your mind what would have been the primary thing. He loved people. He totally and completely loved them. And through that awesome experience of being loved by Jesus, their hearts were just made open. And they could now hear what he had to say. Truth has always been truth, but truth needs soft soil for it to spring forth life. The... Uh, the um, Pharisees heard the same truth and their soil was not soft, even though they were loved by Jesus. But there were many that actually, who had harder hearts, that eventually those hearts softened. And it's always, in my view, people are not converted by the force of truth. They're converted by the power of love. And then they're brought into line with truth after they have been converted through the power of love. And so now in my, um, what do you call them, golden years, would you say that? I'm not old enough to know the right vocabulary. Ed? <laughs> Ed and I are friends enough, we do that to each other. <laughs> anyway, um, I don't, I, I'm thinking that it's love. And what we really have to work on the most in a church is love. Because you see, we do evangelism very well. Absolutely very well. There's probably no church that I know of that is effective, as effective as the Seventh-day Adventist Church in evangelism. We win people. It convinces them. They, they know it's truth. 
but we can't hold on to them the way that we should, and we're losing too many of our own. And so I think it's, it's uh, opening their hearts to hear and holding them by love that is really where we need to put our time. So I'm going to be spending my uh, golden years working on that subject. You may get a little tired of hearing me talk about it, but um, uh, these are the things that are going to occupy my time because you know what? As I go back and look at my life, nobody told me how to love. And even worse than that, very few showed me how to love. And so I would, with your indulgence and with your cooperation and participation as your pastor and as a church family, I would like to have us begin a journey of just really exploring what love is all about in our relationships with each other, husbands and wives, parents and children, and trying to see if we can't get a bigger hold and a bigger understanding and comprehension and experience in love. And I don't know that that's happened in the past, so we're going to try to see what we can do on that. Uh, one of the biggest problems that I think that I've experienced over the years is that when you have truth as the more dominant force in a person's life and not so much love, you get into some problems. And I think what has happened in our particular experience, and maybe as a church as well, that that expresses itself in some pretty strong expectations of certain behaviors. And I grew up really believing that things were right and these were wrong and you got in trouble. I didn't feel a lot of love in that. Maybe a little bit. But we fall into a trap of sometimes in parenting, sometimes in just in church, in anything that we do, sometimes even in employment, that we are governed by rules and regulations more than love. And I want to tell you right now, there's nothing in the world is more, much more powerful than love. Love is very powerful. Love is far more powerful than rules and regulations. And when love comes into a person's heart, they're going to do things that you can never get them to do by rules and regulations. You know, it's really amazing. So I want to talk to you a little bit today about what went wrong and what's wrong with that whole scenario. And I think, I hope, we can learn something that will be very valuable and helpful to us. In 1929, the New York Herald Tribune, um, it made a statement that was pretty profound at that time, but it was predictive of what was going to take place probably for the, almost a half a century after that time. It said the most important book ever written, one stands for an instant, uh, blinded with great hope, they're talking about what this book was supposed to accomplish. In other words, there was expectations about what this book was about that they thought was so powerful that it would change the whole course of everybody's existence. And the, um, that was a tribune. The Times actually said in 1925, speaking about the same book, it marks an epoch in the intellectual history of man. Do you know what that book was that they were talking about? No, no, no. Uh, it was by John B. Watson, and the book was entitled Behaviorism. Do you remember uh, a man by the name of Ivan Pavlov? You remember him? And there was something about him. What was it? The dogs, right? 
the bells. And he used those experiments, and he, uh, he actually created such a stir that it got a hold of this man, Watson, who wrote this book that they were just talking about, and it affected him so powerfully that Watson just went into satellite. He went into space with the conclusions about what he drew from Ivan Pavlov's work. And this is what behavioralists believed, 1920s. It just took over society at that time and held a hold for a long, long time. It's still residually having a lot of power today. We are born a blank slate. Do you believe that? Our habits and personality are formed by rewarding good behavior and punishing bad. I think my parents believe that. I kind of think they did. Do you believe that? Dependency upon others is a bad thing. Being dependent is bad. Hold your babies too much and they will eventually control you. I knew people when I grew up that believed that. Do we believe that today? That you can spoil a child? Oh yeah. I grew up in an area with an era that was really frightening. People believe that and uh, govern their controls on people by that. Let them cry it out. Don't comfort them. Don't work with the baby. Just let them cry it out, and they will become self-reliant, hardy, and able to tolerate frustration. Have you ever seen that happen? Never hug or kiss, or, or let them uh, sit in your lap even. If you must, just kiss them on the forehead when they say goodnight. Shake hands with them in the morning. <laughs> Give them a pat on the head if they made an extraordinary good job of a difficult task. Is that what happens every day? You get a little pat on the forehead? No, I don't think so. Not these girls. You know, the fear was that you will spoil a child and pamper a child, and what you need to do is form rigidly a child. Rigid rules and forced, you know, the little bell and reward and punishment type of a thing. That's how you do it. He boasted, give me a dozen healthy infants. You're aware of this one. This was famous. Well-formed and my own specified world to bring them up in, and I'll guarantee that I'd take any, of, any one of them at random and train them to become any type of specialist that I might select. Doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant, chief, etc., etc. Give him anybody. The power, the belief that Watson had in behavioralist techniques taken from dog studies was so powerful that it just simply took over the world that day. There was a man named uh, Luther Emmett Holt Sr. who was in that day considered to be the uh, Dr. Spock of that generation. And he wrote in a book that he published, The Care and Feeding of Children, he recommended that a parent should not spoil the baby by picking it up, no matter how long it cried, to feed the baby on a strict four-hour schedule. Bottle feeding was considered as good as breastfeeding. Advised abolishing the cradle as rocking was an unnecessary habit, hard to break and very useful. Hard to break? and useless and sometimes injurious. <laughs> Makes you laugh, doesn't some of this stuff? Anyway, 
1930, behavioralism had become mainstream practice, transforming child-rearing practices in America. Wholesale believed. Well, the country was getting ready to go into war. It needed efficiency. It needed to have routines. It needed to have order. Everything had to happen just by the clock. It was very important, so it fit. By the way, behavioralism probably was responsible for a lot of the achievements that we had in a country in the 1930s, 1940s. You know, great accomplishments were made during that era from some of the benefits of behavioralism. But when it comes to raising human beings, that's a wholly different story. There's something missing totally out of behavioralism. It refused to take any interest or, or involvement or even a conception of that there was an inner thing inside of every human being, an inner person, an inner spirit that needed to be cared for, a total disregard for instincts, for temperament, for innate tendencies, or a soul. It didn't allow for the idiosyncrasies and the individuality of individuals themselves. Everybody just marched to the same drum, fit the same mold, if you please. You don't treat one child different than the next. You, I think some of you are not that far off from me. It, this is a familiar thing from the past. It's not unusual. This, these are real things. Believed mankind was no different than rats or apes. The only thing that mattered was conditioning. You can train them to do just about anything, and I would say, if you did, you just very, very well may have ruined that person for life. Everything we do, motivated by rewards, never is there a question of who we are, what we think, feel, or need, or our motives and values. And I'm going to bring this really home right now. When you talk to people, when you develop a friendship with a stranger, is your conversation, is that relationship based upon things you are maybe wanting from that stranger? Or is it to get to know that stranger completely? To know who they are, what is their idiosyncrasies, what kind of a person are they, and how good are we at doing that? How good are we at being attuned to that inner person? I think behavioralism has left some really long-term scars that we're still trying to get freed from. Take any child, any child anywhere, unless there's been some real serious damage that has happened to that child, even in the womb, emotional damage, that child comes, uh, comes prepared with the skills to read the inner person. God gave it to them. They know how, just by looking at a face, to know what's inside a person. They don't even have to know what words mean. They don't even have to know um, what you're talking or if you're saying anything. They can read your face. And they are very accurate. So little children coming out of the womb the way God created them, unless there's been some kind of a severe problem, they are already attuned to the inner person. And they make all their decisions based upon that attunement, 
that ability to read the inner person. And when they grow up, if we're not careful, we will drive that out of them. Now, is that a useful tool for a child to have? You don't, well, let me make my question clear. Being attuned, be able to read what's going on inside another person, is that a useful gift? Yeah. Do you believe that God gives that to children? There's no way that they could survive without that. They have to have that. Do you also believe that it's very likely that by the time that child is in their teens, a lot of that will be driven out of them? If, we don't, if we're not careful, it probably will. Do you think that having that gift that God gives to children early on in infancy would be helpful in their relationship with God? Now think about that for a moment. That ability to be able to be attuned with another person, in this case, someone they can't even see. Do you think that a child like that can attune to God through just that insight that God gives them when they're little? Do you think that they can do that even better than those that don't have that skill? I think they can. I think that's what God wants. You remember Jesus at one time held up a child. He says, if you want to get the kingdom of heaven, follow this example, the child. They've got something that we need, something that we lose, that life takes away from us. They've got it. We've got to go back and get that. Those are spiritual qualities that God puts into the human race and children have got it in spades. And I want to say something to them all of us today and I this is kind of along the lines where my passion is at today I really think that this is one of the reasons why we're not being as successful as we should in all areas of life I think we'll never be successful in soul winning unless we come back and capture this I think we'll probably have a lot of failures in marriages and a lot of failures in parenting we'll lose our children we spend fortunes educating them making sure their heads filled with all kinds of knowledge but not a heart big enough to carry it. We've got to come back and we've got to somehow safeguard that so that that gift that God gives to children doesn't get drained away. And those of us that have got a few years in our, under our belt and rough life experiences, we've got to go back and pick up what we once had and maybe we've lost. We've got to be... The Holy Spirit enables us to understand, Jesus could look into the hearts of people, you, you know this, and he knew what was there. And because they knew that he knew, there was a oneness. They realized here was someone that knew them. I find out that in counseling once in a while, and experiences that I have, that uh, when people sense that I understand them, there is a tremendous relief. Someone understands. And when that happens, they now know that it's safe to listen because you understand. You're not going to violate them. You're not going to abuse them. You're not going to disregard them. You understand. This is a spiritual gift. Discernment. 
And it doesn't just belong to a few, it belongs to all of us. It's a wonderful thing. Can you say amen to the fact that God wants us to have that? Children, he gives it to. And the church should be a place where it's nourished. People that come inside the doors of a church have a right to expect to find that, I think. And it is so lost in our world today. You can't hardly find that anywhere in our world today. That Do you th think of this? How, how effective, how, how attractive would a church be if they really believe that those people know who they are and understand them and accept them. We would never have to advertise for evangelism. Wouldn't have to spend a dollar doing that kind of stuff. They would come because the world is just destitutely hung hungering for this. And it's just basically the thing that Jesus used, what his disciples used, and I think what we need to use today. Okay, let's continue on here. I want to tell you just really quickly, because I don't want to get too involved in the details, but the gentleman, remember Watson with the book Behavioralism that was supposed to be so fascinating and turned the world upside down? I'm going to tell you a tra tragic story right now. He used those principles on his own children. You want to know what happened? With his own children. He had such grand claims of his success, what he could do with those things. His oldest is named Mary. Her life was filled with rage. She was silent prone. She just held everything inside, didn't talk. She became a secret drinker, several attempts at suicide in life. She recalled that when she was 26, before I knew what anger was. Now, let's stop right there. Her life was absolutely flooded with anger, but she didn't know how to deal with it, so she just buried it. She hid it from her because it was too frightening. But it was controlling everything she did. She says, like Dad, I kept turning it on myself. I did everything not to get angry, including marrying a husband who beat me up. That was Mary's life. Something Dad didn't give Mary that ended up ruining Mary's life. John, second child. He was rootless. He was constantly sponging on others. Doesn't sound like he's making much progress here. Suffered bleeding ulcers, intolerable headaches throughout his life. He got married a second time. Watson did. His uh, next child was Billy from the second marriage. Rebelled against his father, became a successful Freudian psychologist who attempted suicide. The last one was Jimmy, suffered from chronic stomach problems, but after intensive analysis, managed to do better. You might recognize a grandchild. This is Mary's daughter, who you may remember who she is. Marriott Hartley, movie star. Uh-huh. If you could see the PowerPoint, her pictures on the screen. Just make believe it's back there. This is what Marriott Hartley said. Grandfather's theories infected my mother's life, my life, and the lives of millions. How do you break a legacy? How do you keep from passing a debilitating inheritance down generation to generation like a genetic flaw? Her life was constantly tormented by the residual effect of 
always focusing on the outside and totally ignoring the inside. That's not the way God worked. It's not the way we are designed as individuals. But I find very often most churches don't really help us to do it a different way. So therefore, that's why I'm talking about it today. Consequences of focusing only on behavior. Watson himself, later on, regretted having written about things that he did not know enough about to do a good job. That's to his credit. He was not harsh at all, just insensitive. And by the way, that's one of the... That, those are some of the conditions of the worst kind of effect on bad parenting that you could have. Right there. Emotionally detached. He warned strongly against spanking and corporal punishment. That's to his benefit. But still he believed physical affection corrupted a child. Making it weak-willed. For almost 50 years, this mentality ruled America. By the way, it's still ruling in other parts of the world pretty strongly. How do you think we're ever going to change things as long as these kind of thoughts are still around? We've got to recognize them for what they are and do away with them. And there are just little tiny residual effects that creep into our lives and just hang on and just drag us down. We've got to divorce those things and cut those things from. The consequences are that conditional love, because everything is based upon conditions in behavioralism. And I was raised, even though my parents didn't know much better, and they certainly, if they would have known, not done this, but I was raised on conditional love. You got love if you behaved. You got affection if you behaved. You got this, you got that if you behaved. I think we've come a long ways from that today, but it's still some residual things hanging around. The result of, of that kind of conditional love is you feel unloved, and life without love, compassion, is an empty life. If you are raised on, in a rigid world, it breeds submission or rebellion. There's nothing as powerful as love. If it's rigidity, it's submission, which has done what? It's just erased you. And rebellion, nobody could bear to be around you. Rigidity in my life was a big deal. I almost destroyed my children from this. I'm very close to destroying my wife. External focus on behavior renders us very vulnerable to other people. Watson thought that it would make us strong Instead, it has just the opposite effect. It gives power to others to determine our identity. We give our power away to others. Okay, during the decade of the 20s, child rearing was officially more repressive than in any 19th century decade. Obsessive control, routine feeding schedules, the amount of food allowed, bowel habits. I mean, there was nothing that was sacred from it. it was controlled. I remember, this is one of them, thumb-sucking. We must have been a real mess because we did this here in Fort Bragg when I pastored this church 33 years ago. You thought we were nice people. We really weren't. Because we had, our oldest was Stan. He's now, you wouldn't want to do this now. He would deck you. But when he was a little boy, he sucked his thumb. And what my wife said, that's not good. So she tried every device. She tried to put things on his thumb, you know. Um, 
she tried somehow to, whatever, discipline, spankings, whatever, because she didn't want him to do that. And Stan went around with casts on his whole arm and a cast over his thumb. So he, <laughs> so he could not suck his thumb. That's again, this behavioralism. Trying to control what's on the outside. I want to say something again. The only way you can ever guarantee you can control the behavior of people is if their heart is linked with yours and with the Lord's. That's it. And you'd never want to control people anyway. You never want to. But we were that bad of a parent. Okay. Here's the effect of authoritarianism. And I just, the reason why I'm saying this is because some of this is going to hit you. And if this is you, I want you to be aware that this is, this is, this is really bad stuff. And this is the, the kind of residual, you know, spill-down effects of behavioralism. You remember behavioralism, what it is? It's focusing on the outside and totally ignoring the inside. We're trying to get back to the inside, to focus on the inside. Everything we do must focus on the inside. We've got to start believing that we have the, uh, that God has given us the ability to reach the inside of people. If you're focusing on the outside and you're being authoritarian, nothing is learned because you don't have to give any explanations. No morality is instilled. You just have to do what you're told. Now, do you like that idea of not, not learning anything? Do you like that idea of not developing any morality? You just want people to lockstep? That happened in Germany. You see what happened as a result of that? Forced to comply. Not forced, not even given an opportunity to think for yourself, not even any teaching going on. You, in fact, teaching involves getting to the heart. But you just want performance. And if you are involved in any way on this, you better be aware that you're working in cross-purposes with God. Um, it forces, again, some to be excessively compliant and others to become excessively defiant. Another thing about it, it requires careful monitoring because the mindset is that you are very suspicious, very suspicious about the nature of people. Since you know nothing, stay with me, since you know nothing of the heart, you don't have anything to gauge on. And since you don't know the condition of the heart, you are afraid that there's rebellion inside and you are going to do all you can to control that. It's just monitoring the outside. You don't have anything to do with the inside because of a suspicious mindset. The goal is, and did you ever hear anything like this, breaking the will. Do you want to ever break someone's will? Versus building their desire to be a, and to do good. Codependency is the result of it. That is following other people's scripts uh, without developing your own value system. You become disrespectful. You cannot hear what is in that other person, and they cannot hear you, and so you can do nothing but disrespect each other. Do you follow that one? A loss of unconditional love. Now, unconditional love is basically what every person is born longing for. Who gives us the greatest amount of unconditional love? 
God does, doesn't he? And God demonstrated it by Jesus Christ. I was talking to somebody the other day, and, and he was an Adventist, and I was saying, you know, we we're talking about the commandments because I guess his son was been saying to them about, you know, anyway, I was giving him points about uh, obedience, and I was saying, you know, we're not saved by our obedience to the law. Our salvation is not conditional. It's, it's a gift to us. It is a gift. And he couldn't quite put that together. You see, once, once you accept this gift, it has to be accepted. You know, even unconditional love has to be accepted. Once it is accepted, there's nothing you can do but obey. And I'll prove that in a little bit. There's nothing you can do. You don't have any choice. You will obey. It works that way. Okay, uh, coercive control, micro-control, false dichotomies are a part of this. Either I punish or I let them get away with it. This idea of I have to always have this control or they will take advantage destroys a person's self-worth. These are all of the things that, has, that comes as a result of those kind of um, uh, techniques. Now, let me just say a few more things about that. Now we know the results. The results are in very clearly about what that does. Rather than teaching and developing excellence, the results are showing that when you raise people that way, or if you teach in church that way, or if you preach that way, you're only going to get back mediocrity, not excellence. Because somebody is just trying to fit somebody else's mode, and guess what? Their heart's not there. Right? And so when people push, or churches even, push so hard to get everybody to conform to the, what's the word? Truth? You may end up with mediocrity. What you really got to do is look at the heart. If you win the heart, then you get excellence. You get the power to actually finish this work. You get the power to go home to heaven. But kids learn that if you just push them this way, they're only going to give you just what you want, and that's mediocrity. They don't do well. They don't stand out. You also get immorality. Because in today's world, we've pushed kids to a tremendous extreme to try to be successful in all areas. We go send them to the best schools, and we give them all the best lessons, and we teach them everything that we ever wish we could have ever learned. Boom, 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 boom. We just fill their life with all kinds of things, and kids know that they have to succeed and succeed in all of those things. And so you know what they're doing today? They are just trying to meet our expectations. We are telling them that they have to be absolutely superb, superb performers in every area of life. My son was not allowed to suck his thumb. <laughs> and as a result of that, kids are cheating like they never have in the history of the world. Because they know the rules are changed. The only thing that counts is succeeding. 
And they know that this is an unspoken world, a rule, that it's okay as long as you get the success. And kids are doing it. In fact, they'll tell you, are, do you believe in cheating? No. Are you a cheater? No. Well, did you cheat on the last test? Yes. They will actually answer that, those kind of questions. There are people that give those questions every year across this country to kids. And they are astounding what these kids will say. They think they're moral, their behavior is immoral. That's the result of this kind of thing. We thought we wanted excellence, we're getting mediocrity. We thought we're getting morality, we're getting immorality coming back at us with this. We want people to be perfect. We want Christians to be perfect. We want children to be perfect. We all, we wish our spouse would be perfect. You know? All of that, and so we're really into perfection. And the end result of all of that is that achievement, this is what is read, is valued more than the well-being of each person. People see right through that. They know if you're tuning on the outside or tuning on the inside. I want my life to become more and more controlled and to be more sensitive by what's going on inside people. That's what I really want to be able to do. I want to be able to get back those childhood gifts that were stolen away from me. I'm finding that as I am able to recapture bits and pieces of that, the power that I have in people's lives just is amazing. If there's a lack of power in the church, I think I know where it's from. Too much focus on somewhere other than the inside. Psychological problems come as a result of this, too. Uh, self is lost, trying to please and survive others. Learning suffers. Religious implications. The focus is on behaving rather than being, on self rather than having compassion on others. And as a result of that, there is a disconnect that takes place. It makes people mad. It's based upon power. It's ineffective. It erodes relationships, and it's self-centered. Do you remember something Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23? You do this and this and this and this and this, which are basically a lot of the things he said to them were based upon focusing on the outward because that's what Phariseeism is. And they had certain, I'm sure, noble goals, but they were going headstrong down a path that was totally focused on the outside, missing totally the inside. And Jesus shocked them by telling them, by doing this and this and this, the things that they believed in, focusing on the outside, he basically said, you're heading to hell. And he made it really, really clear to them. And I think that's a message that we should probably pay attention. Now what's missing from all of this? Empathy, empathy, empathy. Jesus looked out upon the crowds and he felt what they felt. I didn't want to feel what other people felt when I was growing up because my dad, what he felt was scary. I walled that off. And because he treated me the way he did, I walled off my own inner feelings. And I tried for decades not to feel, which is meaning I couldn't be empathetic. 
And as a result of that, I came very near destroying my wife and my children. I lost the ability to have what God gave me at birth, each one of us at birth. Empathy is an inner connection to feel and know what's within another person. It allows us to trust. Please stay with me on this one. Empathy is the bottom line of trust. You cannot trust without empathy. Empathy enables trust to happen. Now let me ask you a question. Do you know another word for trust? Faith. Is faith essential for salvation? You can't be saved without it. Isn't that what the Bible says? And so if we have somehow, as I did, taken empathy off the page, can't be allowed to have happen, we do ourselves some really serious damage. The central requirement, the Bible says, for faith is a word that is used. It's a very simple word, and you may be, I'm sure you've heard it. Faith cometh by hearing. Now, what do you suppose you're hearing? Faith cometh by hearing. Faith cometh by hearing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Faith cometh by hearing. If you're, remember Jesus said, you cannot hear me, he said to the Pharisees. They had ears, so it's not just hearing words. Their heart was closed, so their heart couldn't hear Jesus. Faith cometh by hearing. I think it's empathy. The ability to hear. Hearing, when you can hear the word, hearing is the word shama. It means perceive, to discern. In the New Testament, as I say, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of the Lord. Hearing is translated, listen to this. You may know this, maybe you don't. If you didn't, you're going to want to know this. Hearing is translated in the New Testament as obey. Not hearing is translated as disobey. I'm telling you the same word is for both. Hearing is obeying. Not hearing is disobeying. Now that says something pretty profound and simple to us. That is, if our hearts are open, if we have an empathetic heart, if it's not closed in some way, if it opens up, the Bible makes it really clear, you will obey. You will obey. Satan stopped hearing. Even Adam and Eve stopped hearing in the garden. Uh, Abraham, on his way up the mountain to sacrifice his son, was hearing God. He was hearing. What do you think he was hearing? He somehow was just straining with every energy he could get to have God explain and make it clear what he was asking him to do to sacrifice his son. It fought with everything in his entire being. It fought with his morality. It was a horrible thing to do. He was very connected to the Lord. But was his connection strong enough to take him up that mountain and take the life of his son? He was hearing. Hearing God. Even when he brought that knife up and bringing it down on his son, he was hearing God. Hearing means he was in tune. He understood that there was something about God. It was like a child that looks inside of its maker, its parent, so to speak. 
you know, and knows that there's safety there. Even when there's chaos around, they could fall asleep in the parents' arms. And, and Abraham was there. And he knew that he could trust God even if he didn't understand. Isn't that a good place to be? Isn't that where we all need to be? And let me tell you, did that come by paying attention to the outside? Everything on the outside was alarm bells. It was something that happened in the heart. And brothers and sisters, our time has gone, so I'm going to close. But my appeal is really clear here on this, is that God wants us to recapture, I think, what a lot of us might have lost or are in the process of losing, either big pieces or little pieces or whatever. We've got to go back and understand what it's like to feel, what it's like to hear, really hear. It's like when you get into the Bible and you read the Word, do you really hear? Even if it's confronting you, you really hear. The Lord said to me not that long ago, well, conference said first, you're going to go pastor three churches and two schools. Oh. I went home and told my wife that. And I said to the president, I says, well, you know, in our situation, we can't move. He said, oh. And this is the most impossible thing that I've ever faced in my life, at least one of them. And I have no idea how this is going to happen. The outside is just chaos. The outside is just beyond my comprehension. Do you think I need to follow the outside or do I need to look at the inside? The secrets are on the inside. And it's that connection that I have with God that will somehow guide me through this. It's the connection that I had with God that helped me to put back my relationship with my wife where it's wonderful today. And that secret that I have, that connection I have with God that helped me to heal my relationship with my children. And that's wonderful today. I've learned how to feel again. And I've become more human. <laughs> and I thank God when people learn how to do this. We become more sensitive to everybody around us. Our children, our spouses, our neighbors. The people that we would walk around and talk to about the joy of Christianity. Whoever it may be. If we can learn to go there and be there with people. To be in our heart, to be in tune with itself. And then finally in tune with them too. Do you think changes are going to happen? More than you could ever imagine. If you love me, keep my commandments. And what was that text? Take a look at it again. Go to your Bibles, John 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew. John chapter 13, verse 34. We'll close again just by looking at the verse we started with. John 13, 34. And thank you for listening today. 13, 34. This really wasn't a new commandment, was it? But you know what made it new? What do you think made it new? It was given by Jesus who modeled how to do it. Right? Now it was entirely new. People understood what he was talking about. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. That means feel what's in the other person. That means know the other person. I remember spending absolutely just months with my wife when we finally started coming back together. And we were laid in bed at night for hours, sometimes in the early morning. And, and I listened to her. I said, tell me your story. Tell me about yourself. I had always been concerned about how she treated me. 
It was about me, but then God changed my heart and gave me empathy for her. And that woman, for the first time in her life, had somebody. Boy, God sure trusts this to an unworthy hands. And, and somebody to listen to her. Nobody had done it before. And so as a result of that, she didn't have a clue who she was. She was not able to put her life together. It's only when you have empathy and someone there that's close to you that loves you can you make sense out of the chaos of your life. Someone to talk it through with. It's as simple Jesus said, go make disciples. That means people who can talk it through with you. You know. And, and when that happened, I, we spent months and months and months, and she would say, she would tell me a story, and I says, what did that feel like? And she couldn't even find the word for the feeling. And you know, if you don't know the word for the feeling, that's okay for the amygdala, the emotional centers of the brain. It fully understands, but the frontal knowledge up here doesn't understand without a word. It needs a word. And so the, for the first time, I had the pleasure of fishing around for the right word to describe the feeling. And I supplied words. She says, no, not that. I supply another one. Oh, yeah. And she would put that up there. And slowly, I watched my wife, who I had hurt so badly, for the first time start to grow and start to become the woman that God really wanted her to become. And I was so disgusted with her for not being the perfect woman for me for so many years. And now she most certainly is. She just needed somebody who had a heart. Somebody who could hear. Somebody who could feel. Somebody who was willing to walk on the inside with her. I think people in the church today, that's what God wants us to do. And now, Lord Jesus... May your blessing and your favor and your forgiveness and your love and the power of heaven reside in our hearts as we go now back to our homes and back to our work and back to our community that we might be able to indeed make this world a brighter place by sharing you through our hearts to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.